Good morning, Midland Free. We are so glad you're here to worship with us today, and we're excited that you've joined us from wherever you're at. We just want to say a big, hearty, and healthy welcome to Happy Sunday Fun Day with Midland Evangelical Free Church. I have a question for you as we begin today, and that question is actually twofold. And one of the questions, it's just for fun, is this, is um, I'm curious, I know I'm sitting on something, I'm wondering what you're sitting on this morning as you're watching this sermon. So maybe you want to post on our Facebook page, whether it's a comment underneath the live stream or you want to send it in some other way. Feel free to do so and just let us know, hey, I'm sitting on a something colored something and at the end of today's sermon, I will give the great reveal and let you know what I'm sitting on and what color it is as well. So as we get ready to talk about the Lord's Word today, I want to just first of all start by saying thank you. I know this has been a very different time for us as a church family and uh, it would be easy just to fall away and stop Um, worshiping or discontinue your service of God and church, but I know that many of you continue to serve in a lot of different ways, whether virtually or um, in all kinds of capacity, and so I just want to say thank you, and especially want to say uh, thank you to those who are continuing to support us financially. We see checks coming in the mail, and all the folks who have been so kind as to sign up for online giving, thank you. We deeply, deeply appreciate your support, and it's humbling and encouraging to know that you're still out there cheering for us and rooting us on and supporting the gospel in this difficult and different time. Um, speaking of difficult and different times, I know that um, with one fatal stroke of a governor's order and a crazy virus, we have been forced to re-examine nearly everything, uh, our priorities, our daily routine, how we relate to other people, how we connect as family, and how we go about life and work and family and church and home in a totally new way. And it really brings, I think, to the surface one of the questions we should all ask ourselves but often fail to, and that is this, is how then should we live, you know, in light of eternity, in light of the coming end, in light of the change in our world? What does God want us to do and how does he want us to walk wisely in such a time as this. And so today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and um, I think because we're not doing slides and big screens and all the different stuff, that more than likely the easiest way for you to follow along and the way that I'm going to try to roll this morning is just the old-fashioned way, grabbing a Bible and turning in uh, to the various references and pages, and I know that Depending on where you're at in your Christian life, um, the Bible may or may not be familiar to you, but like any book, at the beginning there is a uh, table of contents that you can just thumb through and find the particular book and the page number that we're talking about. And if I'm going too fast for you today and some of those references, don't worry about it. Just write them down and look them up later. Um, I'm giving you those so that you know that I'm not making stuff up, but I'm actually trying my very best to communicate to you God's Word. And so we'll start today in uh, 1 Peter. And as you can see from my uh, bookmark here, that 1 Peter is near the end of the Bible. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. 
if you start moving from the back and you come to Acts, you've also gone too far. So you'll be looking for First Peter right about in there somewhere. And we're going to start in chapter 4. We're going to ask the question, so what do we do? How then should we live? What is the way of wisdom that God would recommend? And so again, if you have your Bibles, we're in the fourth chapter of the book of First Peter, the fourth chapter of First Peter, uh, beginning in verse 7. If you're interested, you're welcome to stand for the reading of God's Word, or you can stay right where you're at. But this is 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. It says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, here's the purpose of all of these gifts and everything we do, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the way of wisdom, how then do we live in this ever-changing world? Well, I think it's a little bit ironic, but certainly no surprise to God that today's text that was chosen long before we knew the implications of coronavirus was First Peter 4, 7, and it begins with the words, the end of all things is at hand. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or um, someone who's going to try to see something in every single stone or event, but... I did read a number of commentaries this week that basically said they feel fairly certain that everything that needs to be done has been completed before Christ can come back. In other words, Jesus is at the door and ready to return, that the end is drawing near, the time has come, and we're on the threshold or the precipice of a new heavens and a new earth. Now, of course, that's been said for many generations, but there's this interesting way in which the New Testament works. It's called the already not yet. In other words, what it means is that there are some parts of God's eternal plan that have been realized already, but there are other parts that have not been realized yet. And we live with this tension in between the two that already Christ has come and died and risen from the grave. But not yet has he returned. But in between that already and not yet, he's given us eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, and the promise that he's coming again. And so we live now with the eager expectation of the complete fulfillment of all things in Christ. And we're really, really close. close. This thing says the end is at hand. Therefore, as a result, how should we live? It tells us, therefore, B, here are the only two commands of this entire section of Scripture, these verses 4 through 11, only has two commands. Sometimes we may read a command in where there is not one, but there are two imperatives in this text, and they are 
to be self-controlled, that's one command, and sober-minded, that's the other. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Now, I don't know what it's been like for you this week, but uh, those are pretty hard commands. I mean, you could have people in the grocery store aisle fighting over toilet paper. Uh, Tempers flare and um, patience is short. And understandably so. Right now we're sitting in the very hot crucible of the crisis. In our situation, fortunately, it's not the Black Plague or something terrible like that, but we're, we're scared. I mean, there's this virus going around, and what do we do? Is there going to be enough supplies, and will it affect our community, and how are things going to go, and when will we find a cure? Nobody knows. And so we live day by day with this uncertainty, and as a result, that stress that just sits on our shoulders almost endlessly, eventually builds up. And things that were maybe something that we could have stuffed under the surface or not paid a lot of attention to before, all of a sudden are bubbling up with the heat of that flame. And boom, they come exploding out. And you see this in a lot of people's emotions and their interactions. And more than likely, we've all had our moments. Little things that bother us on a daily basis, we're able to stuff and not deal with or compartmentalize. Right now, we don't have that capacity and we explode. But here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it's telling us, you know, this is not the way of wisdom, but instead the way of wisdom is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. So how do we do that? How do we live self-controlled and sober-minded in such a time as this? Well, fortunately, the Bible gives us a number of uh, ways in which we can go about that. James 5, 8 gives a simple command. It says to establish your hearts, establish your hearts. In this text specifically, it associates self-control and sober-mindedness with prayer. And for me personally, I think that is probably the biggest secret to remaining sober-minded and staying in self-control is to have a healthy, active, and vibrant prayer life. Now, when I say that, probably all of us have something different in mind. And I'm not asking you to say, okay, let's create an Excel spreadsheet and make a list and make sure we do this and check this box and check this and check that. Sometimes that could be helpful because it gives us some structure and order, but I don't want us to get locked in the trap that if we do a certain amount, we've done enough. And if we don't do it, we're terrible people. Instead, there's a balance. And that balance is to be walking with God continually in a spirit of prayer, and any time you get a moment, and especially when you need one, that you take one. You can see behind me there's a couple leather chairs, and I don't use them every day for prayer, but there are times where I have to drop that pillow to the ground, get on my knees, and fall on my face and pray before God saying, please help. And that is the time when I realize that he is lifting my spirits and encouraging me probably more than any other. How do I establish my heart? I allow God to establish my heart. It's not me who does it, but it is him as I go to him and ask him for help. Now notice, I want to clarify a few things. This text specifically says that we are to be sober-minded. So there's a lot of views out there on prayer, but if you follow the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, what he does and what the Bible describes as prayer, it always contrasts one type of thing with prayer, and that is drunkenness. And basically what it says is don't be filled with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. The contrast is if you're out of control, if you're being silly, if you're doing something unwise, you are not 
bringing glory to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is always to point to Christ, and therefore when you are interacting with him, you will not be out of control, you will not be out of your mind, you will not be in some other weird way, but instead you will be interacting in a rational, thoughtful, intimate, gentle, compassionate, comforting, spirit-filled, loving relationship. That is different than going crazy or working yourself into a frenzy. That's not of the Spirit. What's of the Spirit is sober-minded self-control, and that is always the way the Bible describes it. In contrast to drunkenness, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with other spirits. Be filled with Jesus' Spirit. Jesus' Spirit always points to Jesus. If it doesn't point to Jesus, it's not Jesus' Spirit. So, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Establish your hearts. How do you do that? You go to God in prayer. Here's another analogy. Today, you've probably heard of something called an emotional support animal. Now, in our church, I'm pleased to say you're allowed to have these. So, if you've experienced PTSD or maybe you have some other issue and you got a professionally trained actual emotional support animal, this isn't just any animal you label your own professional emotional support animal. This is one that's wearing the sweater and is the thing. If you have one of these dogs, then often what happens is you've had some traumatic experience and this animal, by means of its comfort and encouragement and support, gives you a little bit of a boost. You can go to it and you can talk to it and you know that it's not going to argue with you. You know it's going to be happy to see you when you come home. You know that it's going to give you kisses. You know that it's going to be smart. You know it's going to do anything you want. And a lot of times we're sort of scratching our heads saying, man, I wish the people around me were like that. No comment. But here's the thing. Prayer, in a lot of ways, I would say is even better than an emotional support animal. It's easy to go in an animal because we can see them and we can touch them and we we understand, okay, there's something there. So it's a little bit harder to go to God in prayer because we don't necessarily physically see him and we don't necessarily physically feel his touch. But the Bible assures us that going to God in prayer is actually more effective than going to an emotional support animal. In other words, what I'm saying is go to your father before you go to Fido. Go to your father before you go to Fido. Fido's fine. Fido's nice. Fido's good. Fido's not forever. Your heavenly father is. And in that foreverness, in that eternal comfort, he will bring to you the things your soul needs and longs for and desires. So think of prayer, if nothing else, as your emotional support animal. That This is the place you go when you need help, when your heart is hurting, and you need to establish it once again. Go to God in prayer. Now, The other word I would use is prayer and meditation. And I also have to be careful with that because I know a lot of us associate Eastern mysticism and other stuff with meditation. And that is certainly not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about getting in some strange pose and pretending you're, you know, aligned in the spirit so you connect with the deity or anything like that. No, no, no. By meditation, what I mean is you are focusing on God's promises and the truth of his word. Let's look at 1 Peter one more time, grabbing our Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this. It says, look, in verse 3, um, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we bless him? Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. We have hope through the resurrection of the dead into an inheritance. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. And you are being guarded by God's power, not by your power, but by God's, through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in other words, we have these incredible, beautiful, wonderful promises. And I would say the short of it is this. We've said it many times in our church. Look, God is in control. God is good, and Jesus wins. And therefore, because of that, be sober-minded. Focus in on the promises that we have, and let that hope Fill your soul and restore you that you know for certain that you have the absolute certainty of guaranteed victory when Christ returns. He will not lose. He will not fail to complete his project. He will not abandon you. He will come back for his own and he will raise them to new life just like he himself has been in the new heavens and the new earth where viruses and pain and sickness and death are no more. And that is our blessed hope. It's not pie in the sky. It's the thing that gets us by every single day. So, be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Prepare your minds for action. Earlier in the first Peter series, I used a couple different illustrations just to sort of remind you of what they were. One of them was the bike trailer on the way up to Um, Mackinac Island that comes off the back of the hitch because it's not strapped down properly and all of a sudden everything goes crashing to the ground. The idea here is with your mind, this is one of the greatest battles you are going to face in your spiritual life. That there are actual physical battles in our world, but more often than not in North America, you're fighting spiritual battles. And as a result, You've got to strap your mind down. The Bible describes it like girding up your loins. It talks about Elijah and how he ran after Ahab to catch up to him in his chariot. And he grabbed his robe and he wrapped it up and he just ran. And the Lord's Spirit came upon him and pushed him along and made him fast enough to catch the chariot. That's the imagery that we have to associate with our mental warfare. That there is something going on here that we have to be engaged in. And if we don't fight it, it will take over our mind. So prepare your mind for action. Strap it down. Get ready. Here it comes. Best example in scripture, as you know, is always with Jesus. And I'm just going to read this verse from Luke chapter 9. It says this. So we're talking about the, for us, first of all, the end of all things is at hand. Like it's coming. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. But we know a lot of stuff has to hit the fan before then. So what do we do? We be self-controlled and sober-minded and prepare ourselves for action, just like Jesus did in Luke 9, 51. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's to the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Jesus was a man of prayer. He constantly spent time with God the Father. And when he knew his time was coming, he strapped down his mind. He established his heart. He said, this is God's call for me, and I'm going to go through with it no matter what. Sober-minded and self-controlled. Number one, the way of wisdom. All right, you're doing great so far. I'm going to take a drink. Maybe you need one too. Number two, the law of love. The first one was the way of wisdom, and a lot of that has to do with our mind, and it's not just cerebral, but it's spiritual and how we connect with God via prayer and establishing our hearts. Number two is the law of love, the law of love. Now, probably if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with uh, the greatest commandment, but I want to read it just depending on where you're at, so it reminds you. Um, In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, it says this, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him to question, to test him, and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is the law of love. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because in this time of coronavirus, and in any time really, the way in which Christians are supposed to live is by the way of wisdom and the law of love. The law of love in this verse clearly points us to, to love God and love others. And I think when we think about that, we think about loving God and we're like, okay, that's relatively easy because God is good and he loves me and he's always good to me. Sometimes I may struggle with it a little bit, but in general, it's not as hard to love God as love other people. And then we can love other people relatively okay. But what happens when there's these people that we don't know way out wherever in government or whatever else that are making decisions that strongly impact our lives? How do we interact with them? How do we love people we don't know? The Bible tells us not only are we to love God and love others, but the law of love also includes our government leaders. Now, I think this is particularly important right now, and I really wanted to give you this specifically to address our current situation because a lot of questions are coming to us as leadership at church, like, how do we do this? Like, we know that, The Bible tells us to love God. We know it tells us to love others, but we also know that the Bible tells us to keep worshiping. So the state has told us we can't gather in our church buildings anymore. What do we do? Do we secretly gather? Do we break the law? How do we obey God's commands and yet live as good citizens while here on earth? And do they conflict? Romans 13 says this. Let me start out with Romans 13, and then we'll work back into some of those questions. Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 5, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your own conscience. To pay, verse 7, to all what is owed them, taxes, to whom taxes are owed, 
revenue to whom revenue is owed, and even respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, what this verse is telling us is that when it comes to government authority, that we need to respect and obey them in practically every situation there is. Now, of course, I said practically, and you can see in my voice there's a little bit of a caveat there, and I'll walk you through that here in just a second. But what I want you to see is that the Bible teaches us very clearly that we are not to thumb our nose at our government authorities, that those leaders are put there on purpose by God himself. Daniel tells us that he raises up leaders and he brings them down. And we see that happening all throughout history. Various nations up and down, various leaders up and down. It changes. The course of events are always moving, but God is the one guiding them forward. And so we need to have faith in his sovereignty and his control that we are put here for such a time as this, and we may not get it, but He does, and we can rest in that. So obey your authorities. So at Midland Free, we're doing our very best to obey our authorities. That's why our building is shut down and our activities have been canceled. We're not trying to say don't worship. We're just trying to say worship in a different way. Now you have the opportunity to be at home with your immediate family and loved ones in a very intimate setting, to still gather with us every Sunday at the same exact time and be together in a different way, and then look forward to the time when this thing ends and we all come back together again. That'll be a good day, and we'll be excited, and we'll be so happy to see you. But until then, we're going to obey the governing authorities as they have been placed over us. Now, what if, let's just say, for example, they tell us to do something terrible, which is completely against our conscience and against the biblical mandates. In that case, we have clear precedent for practicing what's called civil disobedience or civilly disobeying, not violently or defiantly, but instead civilly. And some of the examples, I'll just list them really fast, um, in the Old Testament are, for example, the Hebrew midwives, Moses's parents, and Pharaoh's daughter. You probably have heard of the story of the Exodus, but the story of the Exodus is dependent upon those people who actually defied the order of the state. Pharaoh said to kill all the baby boys. Moses was a baby boy, and so his parents were ordered to kill him. But instead of killing him, they decide to preserve him, and not only his parents, but also the Hebrew midwives. And when asked about it, the Hebrew midwives say, well, you know, those Hebrew women just give birth so fast, we can't keep up. And so some of the babies don't get killed. They came up with an excuse to do the right things. Like a lot of Christians in World War II who are protecting Jews and things like this, when ordered to do something that is immoral and unethical and breaking God's law, they say no. But they don't have to do it in a terrible way. They just do it righteously. So they place Moses in the Nile River, and Pharaoh's own daughter finds him. And as a result, she also breaks the law and lets him live. And you know, the rest after that is history. Not only the Hebrew midwives, Moses' parents, Pharaoh's daughter, but also Daniel. You've probably heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is actually not their real names. That's their names given to them by their captors. But that is how they're remembered for their refusal to... Um, bow down to the statue and worship any god other than the one true God. And as a result, they're thrown into the fiery furnace and God preserves them. Um, Daniel himself um, refused to stop praying. And as a result, he's thrown to the lion's den. Another example besides Daniel is a female example of Esther. 
who approaches the king without permission, takes a risk there, and also her uncle Mordecai, who refused to bow down to Haman. So I just blitzed through a bunch of those uh, because I see the time is running short. But I wanted to make the point that um, essentially the Bible teaches us to love God and love others and even love our leaders, that we are to always love God, love others, and love our leaders. And loving our leaders right now means we obey them when they tell us to stay home. That's what they do. And, of course, there's exceptions, and they've spelled that out in the executive order, and you can look through that and make sure you're abiding by that. But we as a church are recommending that you do obey the orders of the government and the guidelines of the CDC. Now, with that, Peter tells us, hey, if anyone ever tells you anything that's contrary to the Bible, that we must obey God rather than man. So, for example, if our governor said, hey, you have to deny Jesus, we'd have to say, sorry, no. We're not going to deny Jesus. If if they told us that we had to kill babies as they're being born, like Pharaoh did to the Hebrew midwives, we'd have to say, no, I'm sorry. We refuse to do that. We believe that's wrong. The Bible tells us that all people are made in God's image, and we are not going to hurt little children. There are all kinds of examples you can probably think of, but the point is this, is that whenever possible, we obey the government as long as their laws do not conflict with the law of God. If they do, then we disobey civilly. That means we're loving our leaders. And we prepare for the consequences too then. If you you make a decision that you know is going to get you in trouble, you do so willfully and consciously and say, okay, I've been told to deny Jesus. I won't deny him. This is going to bring consequences. And then you do what he did and set your face and establish your heart and be sober and prayerful and follow it through to the end. Law of wisdom, the law of love. Um, The law of wisdom says be sober and self-controlled and focus in on your prayers. The law of love says love God, love others, and love your leaders. Now, i got to include one leader, not because I'm one of these, but because it's important for you right now. Um, Whether you go to our church or any other church out there, Your church is having to make some decisions about how to do things, and it's new to us. And what the Bible also says is, look, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Amen. For what that would be of no advantage to you, pray for us. For we are sure that we have clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Look, I don't know about every church board out there, and I'm sure there's some scoundrels, but I know about our board, and there are some really godly guys on there. Not only our board, but our worship arts team, and our children's ministry, and our adult ministry, and our care team, and everybody else. People are trying to figure out, how do we do this right now? We can't visit people. Uh... We can't gather together. What do we do? Uh, uh, (laughs) And we're trying. And we ask that you would just roll with that and expect that see changes. Uh, Tomorrow is going to look different than today. And we're going to do the best we can with what we have at the time. But we ask that, as Hebrews say, that you just remember us, that you pray for us, and that you love us. Your leaders include not only your government leaders, 
but your church leadership as well. And indeed, we're making decisions just like everyone else based on limited information and trying to do the best with what we have at the time. And then the next day, we may learn something more and have to change what we just said. So we apologize for any inconvenience that causes you. I promise you, we love you, and we are trying to do our very best to serve you in this really, really weird time. So you've waited a long time, and I don't want to keep you too long because you can probably even smell your lunch cooking right now if it's just in the other room in the kitchen. But the question I asked earlier was, um, what am I sitting on and what color it is? So I'll give you a hint. The thing I'm sitting on is black. The thing I'm sitting on is black. Any guesses yet? First Facebooker, hmm, I don't have a prize, but you're just the first. Congratulations. It's black, and it is not a chair. It is not a chair. Any guesses? Today, I am sitting on the church's piano bench. And the reason I wanted to do so is just to remember our musicians and encourage all those who are wishing they could be worshiping together with you today as I know they loved you. You can go back and watch our old videos as we get choked up trying to communicate how valuable it is for us to be together in worship. But I'm sitting on a black piano bench and um, speaking of musicians, it reminds me of the uh, video that was sent to me this week, which was pretty cool. It was um, the Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra. And since they can't meet together, what they decided to do was to plug in their earbuds and get everybody online at the same time and then play at least a portion of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and record it. And it was absolutely beautiful. It starts out with the bass and the first few measures and then the next instrument joins in, the next instrument joins in. All of a sudden you see all these people like, just dressed in their normal clothes in their house with their earbuds on uh, playing this beautiful piece. And it's very sobering and it's very encouraging. And it's also interesting that that is the same one that um, many of us know as joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And that's not really the um, title of the poem that was written to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Instead, it was the Hymn of Joy by Henry Van Dyke. And I want to just remind you of those words as we get ready to close. And Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. All thy works with joy surround thee, earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed, wellspring of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest. Thou the Father, Christ our brother, all who live and love are thine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. Mortals join the mighty chorus. 
which the morning stars began. Father love is reigning o'er us. Brother love binds man to man. Ever singing, march we onward, victorious in the midst of strife. Joyful music lift us sunward in its triumph song of life. How then should we live in such a time as this? We need the right mindset and the right approach. The way of wisdom and the law of love. The way of wisdom means self-controlled, sober-minded, prayerful people who love God, love others, and love their leaders. One more time, just to remind you, First Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.